So, Rue, I, I woke up at 4 a.m. this morning. It was pretty horrible. I also had to get up at 6 because uh, of this of this yoga thing that I talked about in a previous episode. But I woke up at 4. That's 11 p.m. the previous night, my time, by the way. So I was just going to bed. I know. Right. So I, I, I wake up at 4 and I, I wake up having a horrible, horrible nightmare about bats eating my throat. Oh my god! Right, it was it was horrendous, and I woke up and I could still feel the bats on my neck. Right, why are we talking about this? And so I worked out what it was. Okay, after I'd calmed myself down a bit, my cat was sleeping on my pillow and he was whipping his tail on my neck. Oh, <laughs> that's awful! It was truly horrible. So this morning, my son, after I woke him up to get ready to, to go to school and everything tells me that daddy, he had, he had a bad dream last night that there was a man standing in the hallway outside his room making little noises, which is terrifying when a child tells you that they've seen something because it's easy to say like, no son, there was no one in the, in the house, but us, but on the other side of the spectrum, you're like, oh great. My kid just saw a ghost. That's that. And my house is haunted. This is not okay. Are, are you sure it wasn't just you outside? Like on the phone to Rick at early in the morning and just like giggling or something? <laughs> no, I promise you it was not. <laughs> First of all, thanks everyone who tweeted in. I, I feel like I'm on a 90s TV show where people text in the answer. <laughs> Thanks for, for tweeting the answer. I, I have uh, picked a winner. I have actually picked two winners because I published the episode on the 1st of January 2018 rather than 2019. So someone grabbed it on uh, 31st. So I picked two winners. <laughs> it was not me, by the way. I, I, was, I thought about it, but I decided not to. Yeah. So uh, this is the last episode in this current release. I want to say that because we're not really taking like too much time off. I, I think our, our next episode is going to be recorded on our yearly conference. We'll hopefully have an audience then of like the whole company. So that, that'll be a bit oh, weird. I didn't think about recording it, <laughs> basically having an audience. So my plan is that we will publish this on the schedule and say like, yeah, look, we're going to record an episode and then people will turn up. I'm, I'm not going to make it like mandatory. <laughs> That's... That's a whole new level of pressure. I don't I don't know that I Oh, all right. Okay. Let's do it. Why not? You don't, you don't like this? No, I it's it's just fine. I'll be okay. Okay. I, I think that, you know, every good podcast has a live a live episode at one point. <laughs> Why not make ours uh, the 11th episode? <laughs> yeah. So so there's there's a couple of technicalities that I'm interested in talking to audio technicians about. First of all, we're on a boat. Is that noisy? I feel like that's going to be noisy. There'll be noise, yes. Yeah. I mean, not that the audio perfection on our episodes is always brilliant, but, you know. The second thing is we, we're going to have multiple people on the episode apart from us. I, I won't give away any secrets just yet. But, uh, yeah, we're going to have, like, a multi-microphone setup thing, which I've never done before. Do we need, like, a mixing board? Oh, I hope not. I mean, I don't have one. We'll have it drop shipped to the ship. That'll be great. I'll fly in, especially. Yeah, it'll land on the helicopter pad. That sounds that sounds brilliant. Let's do that. Where we take our group photos every year. <laughs> All right, let's get into some uh, Watchtower Weekly. Let's do it. So, hundreds of German politicians hacked in massive data leak. This comes from the Telegraph. The private data and correspondence of hundreds of German politicians and public figures, including Angela Merkel, has been released online in one of the biggest hacks in the country's history. It emerged on Friday. I feel like we've, we've seen... 
some of this in the U.S. in the past. It's not great, and it's also not surprising. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. First of all, this isn't like um, they haven't hacked the actual like German government websites. This is this is targeted attacks on politicians over a number of services. It's crazy, really, the extent of it over a large amount of services. It was very interesting as well. Much of the data is mundane and undramatic, according to the initial reports in German press. I, I would imagine that's that's German politics for you, really. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is very much just like... Okay, we got into someone's Twitter account, and then we got into their Facebook account, and because they're using the same password for both of those things, it's, it was easy to also get into these other services and, and sort of leak that data out. It's basically high-profile people who have not been educated on, on good password practices. I think it's absolutely that. It's, it's education, isn't it? Um, and I think as, you know, as bad as this hack is, at least it's serving as some sort of education. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. It says the private emails, telephone numbers and holiday photos. And I was just thinking if you hacked one Google account, it would probably contain private emails, telephone numbers and holiday photos, right? <laughs> True. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, you know, although it seems like an extensive amount of, um, of people and, and targets and, and stuff like this, it, it could have been a state attack. It could have been, a, you know, a, a political message it could have just been someone wreaking havoc to be honest right yeah cool uh so the next article that we have uh, was one of the biggest ones here in the british press i'm not sure whether it made it over to america oh no i heard about this yeah essentially i would say our second biggest airport was shut down and it, it was shut down for several days days really One hundred and ten thousand passengers uh, 760 flights. Oh my gosh. And it's because they don't know how many, but it was a number of drones were being flown over the runway. And I feel like this would have been handled in America slightly different. I feel like you guys would have just shot them down. Oh yeah, almost certainly. Did you not shoot them down? No. They said something along the lines of like, they didn't want stray bullets. <laughs> I know Americans aren't concerned about that, but... Well, okay, hold on now. That's not fair. <laughs> 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 that's, that's completely unfair. I thought that I had read recently about like drone disruption devices where basically you could target them with like a gamma blast or something that would just like take them out of the sky. Basically like a like a targeted EMP or something. I'm sure you can do something. I, I mean, essentially a big fan would work, right? <laughs> like <laughs> just generate lots of wind. I don't know how super technical these drones were, but like. I don't know. I, I've played with a few and man, just a big gust of wind and, and you're done for. I also feel like it, it, it's all a bit kind of mysterious at the moment because I mean, yeah, sure. They don't want to, you know, fire off rifles or anything at them. Oh, sure. But like a good net, like a hunting net would, would take down one, right? I don't know. I imagine you catch an elephant in one of these. But like a big net that comes out of a gun. <laughs> Do you know, in my head, it's the scene out of, uh, what's the film with Robin Williams? Jumanji? Jumanji. Yeah, it's the scene out of Jumanji. And he's got like a blunderbuss. <laughs> what they should have done is just called, called that guy and he would have come and he would have had a big, big net. And if that didn't work, he would have shot it with a blunderbuss. I think that one of the things that we are figuring out right now, Matt, is why they didn't call either one of us uh, to come and consult on this. Oh, 100%. Yep. So I can see why this would like take flights down for a number of days, because let's say that they did take out the drones that were there. It doesn't mean that like the same group isn't going to fly more drones when flights continue to take off. You know, it's... Uh, they probably had to do a bit of, of investigation to make sure that there wasn't going to be further danger from this after the initial incident. Gosh, what a mess. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very hard to know kind of how many there were or 
how how technical these were because of course like the the more advanced drones have like gps and and things like that that stop them flying over over things like this over airports and and such in my head if you had like you know several small cheap ones they they would do the same damage and you couldn't as effectively disrupt them or anything. So here we go right from the article. Uh, the head of the armed police for Sussex and Surrey described attempts to catch whomever was controlling the drones as, quote, painstaking because it was, quote, a difficult and challenging thing to locate them. Each time we believe we get close to the operator, the drone disappears. When we look to reopen the airfield, the drone reappears, he said. That's insanely frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, so- someone uh, kind of took pictures of all the all the police officers and everything like that, like around uh, the airport that were kind of spreading out to the point where, you know, you need radio contact with a drone. So like hundreds of meters away from the actual airport, there were loads of armed officers. They, they arrested two people, but apparently that's just because he had some experience with drones. And, you know, the British press went crazy and published their names and everything like that. Turns out they had nothing to do with it. Oh, so gosh. That was, that was a great point from the British press there. Yikes. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting to me that, that this can cause this. And I, I wonder whether 2019 will bring... A lot stricter laws around just kind of flying these around the place. I can still essentially bring one up to, I think it's 400 meters above the ground, uh, just under that, and within one kilometer of a of an airport. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's still not quite good enough to me. I, I feel like we need to set specific parks and things that you can fly these in. Yeah, which is, you know, as, as with any new technology that we need to figure out how it can be used for ill before we can regulate it, I think. Uh, and this is why we can't have nice things, apparently, because people do stupid stuff like this. Yeah, one of the worst things that I saw uh, was because people were obviously waiting to uh, take off. People were already boarding planes and there was one plane uh, that was due to land at about 9 p.m., and he tweeted a photo and it was now uh, 6 a.m. They were still on the plane and there was no food or updates from the crew and they weren't allowed to disembark. So they were just in chairs for that, that amount of time. Dear God. I, I imagine having flown from Gatwick Airport, there, there are more planes where you are cramped than not cramped, if you know what I mean. Like it's more kind of budget airlines than it is anything else. Uh, so I can't imagine that was nice. Wow, that is rough. So we got lo- one last article, uh, which I think is uh, the most kind of outrageous and the most interesting. So w- we've heard a lot of Amazon Echoes and, and, you know, weird things that they've done. One of the weirdest things, I think, is laughing without prompt. Oh, yeah, that's terrifying. I know we were talking about dreams earlier and that thing would haunt me. Oh, yeah. I very purposefully do not have any Amazon Echo devices in the house. One, I just don't trust Amazon's privacy policies to not just be listening to every single thing that I say or do. Um, I, you know, I have a couple of HomePods uh, in the house, which I absolutely love. A couple of HomePods. I have an embarrassment of HomePods, apparently. Yes. I, like, so I bought one and I loved it so much uh, that I wanted to use it for stereo sound for the television in the living room instead of buying a sound bar or something. So I bought another one and, and I linked them together and then I linked them to the TV. So now I have really nice really nice sound uh, in the in the living room for, for the television. And it's like, I you know, I trust Apple's privacy policies implicitly, but it still will periodically, it'll try to answer me when I haven't been talking to it. It'll, you know, I'll, I'll say something that clearly triggers it and it will be like, I'm not sure what you said. And I'm like, I wasn't talking to you. 
<laughs> Amazon Echo scares me more than than a, than a HomePod that just mis mishears me periodically. I just uh, like I said, I don't trust their privacy policies. And then you add in stuff like this, uh, where Echoes will just randomly say say or do things. I think that's just so terrifying. Yeah, it's it's really creepy, actually. Uh, I mean, the, you know, Amazon say they have a team on this and they want to sort it out. But, you know, you can see the string of complaints that people have had and, and recordings and, and things. And the crazy thing is, like, this Amazon Echo apparently blurted out, kill your foster parents. It's so creepy. Like, how does that even begin to be a series of words that's produced by this thing. Because you you can tell that they've tried to train it with humans, you know, allowing it to learn by itself or, or something to that extent, right? <laughs> it's not just phrases that it's picking up on. A beginning of, of Amazon kind of trying to push faster than they can control things. I mean, if, if you look at the list, at, you know, Alexa has also talked about dog defecation and things like sex act and all that kind of stuff that you really don't want a weird AI talking about out loud in your home. No, certainly not. You can get like homemade software to put on these things. Like they have apps and, and stuff. I think we'll see a lot more of these, right? Oh yeah, for sure. You know, the apps aspect of it also gives me a little bit of pause because you're now dealing with a recording device in your in your home that can have software installed on it from a developer whom you know, could potentially be compromised. I may be overblowing it a little bit, but it seems like the potential for it to pick up on on privacy related issues seems a lot larger than it is with with other things. Yeah, I I have um I have a Google HomePod. Uh, no, not a Google HomePod. A Google Home. You know, it's it's probably a similar privacy policy as Amazon, to be honest. But I I try and put them in rooms where you know I don't frequent. I just like to play music in. That makes it sound like I have a giant house. I really, I've got like three rooms, really. But you keep them in the south wing, in the music room, yeah. In the music room, of course, yes. Which is next to the to the ballroom, <laughs> which is next to the drawing room, and above the servants' quarters. No, I get it. You know, I am concerned about these, and and if a HomePod was an option, I, I think I would have gone for it. But I, I paid thirty pounds for mine, and the HomePod here is four hundred. So we know how much you value your privacy, is what you're saying. Yeah, about three hundred and ninety odd pounds worth. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic i think that's that's all the watchtower weekly we've got oh, there's a couple of good ones this week i like that yeah just some interesting articles and and you know i i think 2019 will bring you know interesting privacy concerns and security concerns and hopefully we can continue to find some interesting articles to talk about as long as people are uh continuing to do unsafe things on the internet matt i don't think that we're going to run out of articles i think as long as people to do anything on the internet, uh, we will still have articles. Yeah, absolutely. So today we have a wonderful guest on the show. We have uh, Mr. Jeff White. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, Jeff, do you want to give people a little bit of background into who you are, why why you're on the show today, what uh, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, mainly because you invited me, but um, I'm, a, <laughs> a, I'm an investigative journalist and I cover technology and I do that for, among others, uh, BBC News, Channel 4 News, and also Audible, mainly known, I guess, for audio books, but they've started doing audio series recently, audio shows. And um, the one I did uh, last year for them was all about the dark web. So that's, uh, that's I think, what we're going to be talking about today. Oh, that's very, very cool. In your career as a, as a cybercrime journalist, are you finding any uh, lack of things to talk about these days? <laughs> Not in the slightest, no. <laughs> sort of depressing, you know, you, you kind of think, well, 
surely they must have run out of ideas or all of the holes must have got plugged. But it's interesting. Things things come back in fashion. So, you know, the WannaCry attack, the ransomware attack from 2017, you know, I think a lot of people thought they might have seen the back of worm attacks, you know, around the turn of the century. And then suddenly worm attacks come back and they're, they're a thing, you know. So it, you see sort of trends coming back and you see a hole that you thought had been filled, people find a new way to exploit another type of hole that hasn't been filled. So it's, it's certainly not going away anytime soon. And also, frankly, there's money. You know, as long as there's money, there'll be people trying to chase it. And I find the creativeness of these criminals quite compelling. Uh, you know, it's obviously not good, but you've got to, at one stage, be, at one level, be kind of impressed by the number of different ways they have of trying to break into companies and monetize the stuff they get. Yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, you've, you've certainly been on my TV screen, uh, Rue's based in America, so maybe not so much over there. It's a matter of time, Rue. I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> over the last, uh, yeah, couple of years reporting on, on cybercrime and, and stuff, what's uh, interesting in, in media coverage, I guess I'm watching local news as well, but around things like Tor, the, the focus is really like instantly on criminal usage and an element of kind of fear about these things. Yeah. How do you think that, you know, we as people who make technology can kind of separate it from the bad uses of it in reporting? It's interesting. I mean, really from the first coverage of torn of the dark web the focus was on was on crime that's how it that's how it got big most people myself included heard about the dark web when the uh, silk road website was launched and obviously silk road was largely based around criminal drug trading so that's really how a lot of people first heard about it it's it's eye catching it's you know there's this phrase in certainly it was in local papers when I was in local journalism. Um, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> um, crime gets on the front page. It's it's an insight into the darker side of life. And I think there's a sort of a, a, a sort of prurient interest for people in crime, but also not to get too philosophical about this. One of the reasons I think crime makes news is because people reading it can separate themselves out and say, well, those are the bad guys. You know, I'm reading this and I'm the good guy. That's why papers want to brand criminals as being evil and evil geniuses and evil masterminds is, is to reassure their readers. You know, these, these people are so removed from normal society, which in a lot of cases they are. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that people picked up instantly on the crime element and journalists picked up on the crime element probably shouldn't come as a, a surprise. What's been interesting is if you look at things like, for example, WhatsApp and the, and the asymmetric encryption that these services are offering and that they're selling themselves on, look, you know, we don't have access to the keys. You know, if law enforcement come, we, we, you know, we have limited ways of helping them out. That's a selling point for a lot of these services. Um, that type of encryption and strong encryption has become a sort of selling point. That really was, was part of the point of the dark web and of Tor, but the dark web and tour sort of, if you like, started too early. It started early. It got a reputation for criminality. And so the security and the encryption and the good encryption users of Tor haven't really been covered that widely because they were sort of swamped by the sort of criminal, oh, my God, this is a bad criminal thing. What's interesting is, you know, people are now interested in encryption. They're interested in security, but they haven't looped back to look at Tor again and think, oh, well, hang on. This thing that we associated with crime and that we thought was terrible, actually, that might be quite a quite a good and useful thing. There are some signs actually that that, that's changing. I mean, there's this uh, service called Secure Drop, which has been around for a while, but increasingly, uh, newspapers, certainly in the UK and 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 in the US, are starting to use this. Basically, Secure Drop. If you have a story you want to leak to a journalist, Secure Drop is a way of leaking that story, and it forces you to use Tor. It forces you to use dark web type technology, which obviously makes communication with a journalist safer. It, 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 you know, wonderful as journalists are, they're not 
brilliant at cybersecurity always, so it forces them to to get smart about that. And so that secure ops system is starting to maybe give Tor a bit of a better name. And but as I say, journalists tend to look at the dark side, and that's going to get that's going to get headlines, I guess. I think it uh, it helps as well that the the story of of Silk Road is so insane. <laughs> it's it's so crazy and 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 kind of almost fiction. It seems that it kind of helps breed that. Oh, this is you know this this tour thing. It's a, a thing of fantasy. It really did feel like that. I mean, I remember what was interesting. I mean, when the first time I looked at the dark web and I started looking at this, it there was a nostalgia to it for me because it reminded me of the sort of early days of the web. So I got started in in the web industry in late nineties, and although it was you know it was big by then, it, it was amazing how you'd talk to people and they'd have visited the same websites as you. And this is you know you've got to realize this is pre-Google, um, word just sort of spread. And you, you got the feeling that, in, you know, given a week or so in those days, you could probably get around all the websites that there were. Um, <laughs> and in Tor, when I discovered the dark websites, it, one of the appealing things about it, and still is actually, is this idea that it's a smaller network, it's a community. You know, you feel like with a, you know, a week or so's work, you could probably get around all the sites. So there are a few thousand of them, most people estimate. And Silk Road when you visited was a community. It was, you know, it was a community based around mostly the trade and illegal drugs, but it was a community of people who discovered this world. And there was a sort of island party atmosphere to it almost that, you know, people have stumbled on this kind of hidden backroom party and were just kind of, you know, getting to know the people there. It, it did have a vibe about it. And then, of course, there's the craziness of the fact that they're trading drugs. Then there was the craziness of the fact that law enforcement were trying to infiltrate this site. And it turned out that Several of the police officers infiltrating it were also themselves criminals who were stealing Bitcoin from the site. This site's administrator ended up being raided by the cops and then they staged his death and his murder so that they could infiltrate the site further. I mean, it just went on and spiralled on and on and on. And at the heart of it was this, you know, mythical character of Dread Pirate Roberts, which was stolen, of course, from the Princess Bride, a character from the Princess Bride. And the, the Dread Pirate Roberts in Princess Bride is a personality that's inhabited by multiple people. You know, it's, it's a character that people take over one after the other. So that Ross Ulbricht, who was the guy who actually was Dread Pirate Roberts, was riffing on that and sort of implying that it wasn't just him, it was a group of people or that, you know, multiple people had this identity. He was a nice, middle-class, well-brought-up, libertarian chap in the US who just had this, you know, this crazy idea to build this website. So the character at the heart of the whole thing, you know, was also very compelling. Yeah, I'm, I'm stunned there hasn't been a film already, unless I've missed it. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, when's, when is the film uh, being optioned here? It's got to be any, any time <laughs> now. <laughs> so this uh, new dark web series uh, that you have on Audible, it's a great piece of investigation. Uh, you have a numerous amount of interviews with some really interesting and, and kind of high level in the story people. Um, you know, you, you go across both technical aspects and more of the kind of human interest piece of it who who did you really mean this for when you were kind of it, planning I mean, all it the out? stuff i do is always aimed at a general uh, general audience so uh, slightly embarrassing one of the calls that i always make after something's broadcast or published is is i i phone my mum and just ask whether she understood it um whether it made sense to her she always says yes of course but i can tell when she's lying which is useful that's such an awesome uh, sort of like watermark for yourself. Like, well, did, I, yeah. did I hit this right or not? That's that's I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> it's interesting. You, you, you on the one hand, I'm doing that. On the other hand, I know full well people are listening and they're they're listening for what you get wrong. And look, nobody's perfect. I'm sure I will make mistakes. I have made mistakes in the past. Um, 
usefully none that have been libelous as far as I'm aware of. Um, but so you're trying to please two masters. You're trying to, you're trying to, on the one hand, get the tech right and explain it correctly. And obviously explaining the dark web and how it works is a challenge, although one that I think we, we, just about surmounted during the series, but also you're trying to tell fun stories, you're trying to tell compelling stories uh, and sort of string together a narrative. And those two things don't always, you know, they're not always compatible. But I mean, there's, there's just some great stories. And, you know, it was, I couldn't have made it without people saying yes. I mean, you know, as you say, Ross Ulbricht's the founder of Silk Road, his, his mum did an interview. One of the guys who actually built the Tor software, Paul Syverson, who worked for the Navy Research Laboratory, he, he took part and did an interview. A whole police department in the UK who do child... Uh, sexual abuse offences, you, you know, they gave me really good access. So, you, you know, it was, it was without that, you just can't make the series. You need people to speak to you and talk to you. And we were, we were really lucky that we got good interviewees. So you mentioned the, um, the Navy guy there, but it really did surprise me that you start off with the history and, and more specifically the money of, of how Tor started. And it, and it did surprise me to learn that US government actually heavily finances Tor. It's not widely reported. It's not usually included in in the story of of Tor and the dark web. But like, why why do you, you think you that is? You don't have to dig very deep, I think, to 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 find out that the Tor software was partly developed, um, well, actually mainly developed at the Navy Research Laboratory, the U.S. Navy Research Laboratory. The fact that it's it that it's still been funded, or over the years, it's been extensively funded by U.S. government, and that obviously raises the issue of well, <clears throat> you know. Is Tor completely secure when actually it's being funded um, by by arms of the U.S. government? The response of the people who build Tor and the, the Tor Foundation, who sort of oversee the code, is: Well, look, this is open source stuff. You know, if you want to look for a backdoor, if you want to look for intrusions from the U.S. government, go ahead. And if you find one, report it to us. And by the way, people have done that. So that's their sort of defence. I have to say, I think recently the Tor Foundation um, has been starting to back away from. U.S. government funding and trying to find other sources of funding because they're aware, you know, it it doesn't look good if funding comes from the U.S. Uh, government. But the other intriguing thing about all this, of course, is on the one hand, you've got arms of the U.S. government funding TOR as a sort of freedom of speech tool because it can help you, you know, get messages out of places like China where the Internet's heavily controlled, Iran and so on. It can help do that. And on the other hand, you've got arms of the U.S. government like the FBI who are fighting against crime waves that have been unleashed by this same technology. So it's a slightly schizophrenic uh, view. And as I say, you know, that's the world's a chaotic place and it's not always easy to um, to interpret it and create a, an easy narrative for people. I imagine the uh, US government is slightly a chaotic place as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly is now. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, as a reporter who has been given access to like several of these very private communities, do you learn more things about how to protect against their tactics? Uh, what, what are your personal security tips that you kind of give to everyone you know? The first one is isn't actually a technical thing at all. It's sort of more of a, uh, an ethical thing is that even when I'm reporting on criminals and wrongdoing and so on, legally, we always give people the right of apply. So if I'm going to implicate somebody, identify somebody, I will always go to them and say, look, this is what I'm going to say. This is when I'm going to say it and how I'm going to say it. What's your response? Because if it's all a big misunderstanding or if they've actually been misidentified, that's their opportunity. So when it goes out, People aren't surprised. I think if you surprise people, then they might be more likely to try and attack you or hack you or whatever. You know, I try and, as far as I can, play fair with people. And there's only been a couple of occasions where people I've reported on have, have, have turned ugly. Um, and luckily, that hasn't really gone anywhere. Because mainly, you know, 
they've got their chance to correspond with me and interact with me before the piece goes out. So they're not sort of su- surprised by it. But obviously, you know, there's a level of sort of technical protection you want to sort of give yourself. Um, I mean, for me, I, you know, um, I, I'm extremely careful about emails that I'm sent, particularly ones I'm not expecting. I'm extremely careful about clicking on links and opening attachments because obviously that's the absolute classic, you know, that's that's the key infection factor. And when I was doing all of the dark web work, um, that's all done through a separate laptop that's a a burner laptop, if you like, something that's got no personal information on, no professional information on it. You know, it's effectively a a reset machine. Um, And that goes through uh, a separate internet connection, so it's not linkable back uh, to my my house. It's linkable back, I suppose, to a country. And also, you know, there are occasions where if you use your real identity as a journalist, you won't be able to get access to the areas that you have to get access to. So you're using a fake identity, and obviously that gets harder and harder because... People say, well, you know, what's your Facebook account? And if they look at it and it's been set up in the last two days, they're going to know that something's amiss. So technically, to use a fake identity and to, to, to use a covert way of, of getting into these places is, is tricky. But also ethically, I mean, frankly, a form full of cyber criminals selling credit card data, uh, you, you know, you don't have to push the lawyers too hard to go and get permission to go, OK, we'll, we'll set up a fake identity, we'll go in there. But there are times when... You know, you, you pretending to be somebody else, impersonating somebody else and, and, and sort of faking your way into these forums isn't always a comfortable experience. And frankly, I got into this job to tell the truth. You know, the, the idea of journalism is you tell the truth. If If you're having to lie to a whole bunch of people about who you are in order to get access to the truth, you've got to ask yourself some hard questions. So, I mean, the key thing is with the dark web stuff, if I hit on the wrong site, if I clicked on the wrong link – you know, and the laptop burst into flames, would I miss it? And, and in the case of the dark web laptop I was using, the answer is definitely no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should definitely uh, kind of, you know, frame that laptop on your on your wall now and be like, <laughs> like that, that was the that was the laptop that did me well. I'm, I'm no, no longer ever going to touch that. <laughs> All right, perfect. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks again for coming on the show. If people want to find out more information about you, uh, what's the best place to go? If you search me on the web, I'm all over the place. But my website is Jeff White. Uh, Jeff with a G, white like the color, dot tech. Perfect. Thanks very much. Good stuff. Thanks, guys. Okay, so for our place name this week, uh, we have a special guest. So joining the podcast uh, with us now is uh, our longtime friend and colleague, Greg. How are you today, Greg? Hi, I'm great. How are you guys? Oh, we're doing very well, thank you. So we have uh, we've brought Greg on to uh, talk about the place name for this week, which I don't think it's too difficult, but it is uh, near a town that is one of my favorite place names. Okay, so uh, first of all, I think uh, Rue takes a shot, and then I'm going to take a shot, and then I'm assuming, Greg, you know how to pronounce the above. I'll let Rue go first. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's most likely. Oh God, I hate doing these. It's it's uh, aeropi, right? It's it's aeropi. So I, I figured it was either one of two ways. It's either aeropi or europi or europi <laughs> or or aeropi. You just said it's one of two ways, and then you gave four ways to pronounce it. I am well aware of that. So I've never actually been to this place. Um, I've not actually been to Isle of Lewis either. Um, but from the way that it's spelt, 
Rue's not that far off. I would say it was Aropai. I mean, that sounded very far off from what Rue said, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see you're playing favourites here. That's fine. Well, I said closest. <laughs> if you click through to the Wikipedia page, typically they do like a pronunciation guide after the fact, but this doesn't appear to be that. They've given up here, yeah. It's probably because the um, the population of Aropai is probably about three. (laughs) Do you think the number of sheep that live there is higher than the amount of humans? A hundred (laughs) percent. So the town that this is near uh, is is one of my favourite place names. Uh, And I I think one day when I visit Scotland, because I've I've never been to Scotland, as as stupid as that is, I will one day visit the butt of Lewis. (laughs) (laughs) And and Rue, you will get a text message on that day that's saying, I am in the butt of Lewis. I'm so excited. You don't want to know what's at the north of Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, so thank you to Rue and thank you, Greg. Uh, love you, Greg. Love you, Rue. Love you, Matt. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs>